Welcome to the Retake Podcast. This is your host, Joe Darnell. Real quick, I wanted to note that at the beginning of the show, my guest, Chad, had a technical audio difficulty, so he's not got the best audio quality. Clears up around 12 minutes into the show. We're sorry about that. He sounds great by the finale, so enjoy the show. This is Retake, a show about enjoying the cinematic arts that includes new films, old films, remakes, pretty much anything that catches our fancy. I'm Joe Darnell, and I'll be one of your hosts today for The Cinematic Ride. And today I'm joined by my friend, the host of the Cinescope podcast, Mr. Chad Hopkins. Hey, Chad, how are you doing? I am doing great, Joe. How are you? Doing excellent. This is your first time on our show. Yes, this is my first time on Retake. This is a crossover. That's what they call this, right? Yeah, something like that. You know, so it's sort of like if uh, Supergirl shows up on Arrow or The Flash shows up on Daredevil. That's how it works. Right. We're not going to be talking about superheroes this week, although that is one of our favorite subjects in the world, Chad. I thought that we would talk about the next best thing. We would talk about Cowboys. Sounds good to me. Now, you haven't already reviewed this movie, right? No, I have not. We actually don't review new movies on Magnificent Seven, so or sorry, oh, okay. on Cinescope. If your show was called The Magnificent Seven, then you'd have to have seven hosts, and that would be awesome. <laughs> <laughs> that would be awesome. I, I can't imagine the editing nightmare that would be, though. <laughs> Everybody just edits their own voice chat. It happens in about five minutes, right? Oh, it, right. It is, yeah, yeah, for sure. <laughs> it's great. And uh, the, the Magnificent Seven, have you encountered the original film? You know, the only encounter, admittedly, I've had with the original film is the original musical theme song by Elmer Bernstein. So this was a new experience for me. I hadn't even seen Seven Samurai by Kurosawa, which was the basis for that original film. So this was pretty much a entirely new story for me. And I wasn't sure what to walk away with or what, what I would witness in the theater. But I walked away having enjoyed it pretty well, I think. It has a really good musical theme. We'll talk about that more in a few minutes. But it's interesting you brought up the Samurai movie because wasn't that also one of the inspirations, or at least some of the action sequences from that film were inspiration for Star Wars, stuff that George Lucas did in the 70s? It might have been. You know, George Lucas has always or never been shy about him being a film geek. I wouldn't be surprised at all if Seven Samurai or other classic films by similar filmmakers made their influence and impact on Star Wars. The Magnificent Seven is a film that feels like the Avengers equivalent of its era. You know, you've got a group of heroes. They're all misfits, kind of uh, the Guardians of the Galaxy style. So it's only appropriate that Chris Pratt is in this film, where this ragtag band of, uh, you know, well-meaning outlaws and uh, some people just on the edge of the law, like Denzel Washington's Chisholm are working together to save a town of people that are being uh, oppressed by a real fiend, a greedy, miserly entrepreneur. Right. This is a remake of the original film, so it doesn't follow the exact storyline, and I'm okay with that because the original film felt kind of slow at times and just kind of cheesy, like the emphasis was on the 
concept and seeing the stars in the film and appreciating the vibes you got from seeing just the actors that were very popular at the time, like Steve McQueen, superstars in their own right. So they kind of steal the scene because there's seven heroes opposed to 30 bandits. They're protecting a small Mexican village. Really, there shouldn't be that many bad guys to go around. The The whole film would be very brief. The fight would be very brief because if these guys are seven magnificent cowboys, there's just not a lot of uh, opponents to go around. And I, I felt like the original film, while meaning well and being a Western classic, really just doesn't cut the mustard for modern audiences because we have very high expectations for action. We have high expectations for realism. A story set in the Westerns in the old days could get away with a lot of Hollywood facades. Back in 1960, I think, when the original came out, you're right, we didn't have all these the access to special effects and this high-tech filmmaking stuff. They had a roll of film and they had lights and they had locations and that was pretty much it. And uh, it was less about the spectacle of it than like it is now and more about just the atmosphere of it. You had close-up shots. You had um, – and like I said, I haven't seen the original Magnificent Seven. I'm drawing from other Western experience I have from that time period. Um, you, it was just an emphasis on the feel of the film rather than yeah. anything like we get today, whereas more today it's the spectacle of it. It's the action of it. And that's not necessarily to today's detriment, but I would say that because that's what we're used to now, it's to the old film's detriment. Right. And this new film, you would not know that it was originally based on a musical, whereas the original film still felt like it had too much influence there. Just not necessarily that they broke out in the song, but that it felt like it could have been the stage performance at times. Right. But that was true of the era of the filmmaking style. So we'll move on and talk about this one. Did you have any expectations going in? Did you see the trailer? You know, I might have seen the trailer once or twice in front of other movies I've seen this year, but this wasn't one that was necessarily high on my list of things I needed to see. I like Denzel. haven't seen a lot of his films, though. I like Chris Pratt. I've seen a couple of his films as of late just because he's been very high on Hollywood's box office. But there wasn't really anything particularly exciting about this movie, except I guess you could say... You know, me being the music guy, everybody knows. Yeah. Um, James Horner, this is his last posthumously released score after his untimely death last year. I was a big James Horner fan, so the, the prospect of getting a new Western score from James Horner is very cool because and we got largely this. It's Western films present an opportunity to give you a more natural score rather than a lot of electronic sounds. And... Uh, this definitely feels a lot more organic than the typical Hollywood film score. And so I, I was definitely looking forward to that. And I, I was paid off in that regard. That's one of the main draws for me because I've always enjoyed a good Western for its soundtrack, it, the mystique. I've watched a lot of older Westerns. I enjoyed uh, The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance, which uses a lot of music to propel the story and drive energy. Then you have um, High Noon, which is all about the soundtrack. And there's actually a cut of the film where it doesn't have the soundtrack and it, it's utterly abysmal. It's, it's really boring. <laughs> uh -huh. There's a lot of films like that that are just made by their soundtracks. And Westerns, they're, they're really made or broken by their soundtracks. So I had a good feeling because The Magnificent Seven's original had a great theme that is often used for the best of Western albums that you can find out there if you want a compilation of like the best of music. And 
this film doesn't use the theme until the ending. I think it was the James Bond series with Daniel Craig that didn't introduce Bond's theme until you actually got to the credits for the end of Casino Royale. And it was not a bad thing. It's like these men, the Magnificent Seven in the making, but they're not magnificent until you've seen how they prove that they're magnificent by the end of the film. And then they deserve their theme. Right. <laughs> Whereas I think in the original film, the theme was just kind of overused throughout the film and it waned because for a feature-length film with that particular theme to be overused, it just uh, as, as great as it was, as iconic as it was, it just matured and got to the point of fatigue. Right. I mean, if we are going to talk about the music a little bit right now, I like the original Magnificent Seven theme by Elmer Bernstein. I don't know if I like it being used here, at least not the way it was used here. To me, tacking it onto the end of the film, why now? If you're not going to use it the rest of the time, why put it onto the back? This doesn't need to be like some sort of throwback moment. It's This movie is separate. It's its own thing. Yes, there are callbacks to it in some ways, but I think that just shoehorning the main theme in there at the very end was a little bit over the top for me. I think if maybe they had sprinkled in pieces of the theme, like just a little bum, 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 bum. Yeah, yeah. And that's it at, yeah. at the beginning or maybe little hints of it here and there. And then at the very end, we get the full thing. That would have been great to me. Hmm. Um, but since James Horner clearly didn't take that approach, I would have just rather the whole thing been completely James Horner, maybe some hints to the theme just as like an homage rather than just straight up copy-pasting the theme from the old film to the new. That's a very good point. And I hadn't thought about that. It would have been it would have been a nice touch to be able to hear just a, like a, a measure's worth of the theme introduced and throughout and then maybe used especially during the fight sequence at the end of the film. Right. Um, and you're right. It was heavily influenced by what has James Horner already written before he passed away. Let's use that and be as faithful to his vision as possible you know, most of it was written before the film was actually cut. It was written during post or pre-production. So, it, yeah, they, they did have their hands tied for the soundtrack. And I think in spite of that, it still sounds really good. Um, I think that they were more interested in honoring Horner's vision than necessarily paying homages to the original film. Right. So I think we should talk a little bit about the the box office results because – this film came out, what was it, on September the 23rd, and it hasn't been very long, but it had a production budget of $90 million, and it's only brought in $61.6 million. So it's not doing that great. Worldwide, it's, it's already made back its production, so it has a $108 million. That's uh, good for them. And it's not like they're trying to prepare for a sequel, so they don't have to worry too much about the the gross, uh, the lifetime of the results. But it is a sign that as a, just a genre-based film, people today are still not all that interested in Westerns. Yeah, I think there's definitely still a stigma against Western films. You know, as we've already talked about a little bit, Western films of the 60s and 70s, the, the time where they were really prevalent, um, they, they were a little bit more boring, quote-unquote, uh, compared to today's standard. And so people knowing that stigma and knowing what what films were like back then in, in regards to Westerns, they're not as willing to give it a chance nowadays. I think that's part of it. I also think that because it's a remake in a time where we're saturated with remake after remake after remake, especially because this isn't like the Ghostbusters reboot sequel, that whatever you want to call it, that we got earlier this year, where there was a sort of aspect of social justice attached to it, where people who were 
incredibly for the remake for the reasons of female-led films. Uh, they they were the ones who drove that box office return. Yeah. And here, there really isn't that going on. You've got people who like Westerns, I guess. You've got people who like Denzel or Chris Pratt. But other than that, uh, you're, you're not getting a whole lot of other people who are just excited to see a classic Western remade. And, you know, I don't know... I don't know for sure, but do you think there might be a little bit of a Chris Pratt fatigue going on right now? Hmm. I hadn't thought of it that way. Maybe there's also a Denzel Washington fatigue going on because I actually was thinking about that more so because Denzel, as great as he is as an action hero like Jason Statham, he pretty much does the same story over and over again. So about one out of five of his movies are really worth watching. And if you're a Denzel fan, you should watch all of them. But it's the one out of five that's like a really great film that's worth having in your collection, while the rest of them are basically doing the same things over and over again for the Denzel fans. And that's okay for that actor's career. If that's what he wants to do, that's fine. I'm, I'm not criticizing it. But it does feel like if Chris is you know, fitting in his mold and he keeps repeating the same kind of characters, he's you know, Star-Lord in a Western – then maybe there is that kind of fatigue. I hope not, because I I still really enjoy Chris. And I think it was interesting how most of the characters of the seven, the Magnificent Seven here, really are enjoyable in isolation. If you if you think too long and hard about who's performing the characters and what they've done over their filmography, then they can feel a little bit stale or repetitive or unoriginal. But if you think in isolation for what it does for this Western, I think it's very enjoyable to to settle down into this narrative and just enjoy the thing. But is it influences whether or not people are going to go watch the film in the first place, whether or not they're willing to buy a ticket. I think you're right. If people feel like Chris is great, but I can wait until that comes out on Netflix, then there's a lot of the audience that is probably just waiting around for that release later. Right. Well, with Chris Pratt in particular, you know, after Guardians of the Galaxy, his career exploded. So he's been in Guardians. He's been in Jurassic World. He's been in The Magnificent Seven. He's got another film coming out later this year. He's got another Guardians of the Galaxy film coming out next year. So in just the past couple of years, yeah. uh, he's been very, very busy. Uh, Denzel, on the other hand, he's only made four or five films since 2012. Right, um, right. So basically, more or less, a film a year. Of those, I've only seen two of them. Now, I'm not saying I'm indicative of the general populace, but... I'll say you are indicative of the general populace. I'll say that. Okay. Go with it, Chad. Okay. I wouldn't say I feel Chris Pratt fatigue myself. I still enjoy watching him. Now, Jennifer Lawrence is another story, but that's beside the point. Chris Pratt, I, I haven't gotten sick of yet. I still enjoy watching him. But that being said, he was not my favorite character in this movie. Hmm. Yeah, no, I, I understand where you would come from. Who was? Denzel Washington is outstanding in this film. He is so good. If only the uh, the shadows on his face would not take away from his performance sometimes. It seems like the brim of his hat cast too many shadows, and, and so I lost some of his performance because I just couldn't see his eyes. You know, I, that's not something I really noticed. Uh, Perhaps the, it the, was just the lighting on the copy of my my showing. I don't know. Possibly, or maybe it's just that's a particular detail that you – paid more attention to than I did. Um, 
I, I the only thing that sort of distracted me, I guess, was his facial hair was a little weird. If, if <laughs> we want to get that specific, but the, the sideburns and the mustache yeah, and the handlebars, yeah, it was just yeah. a little strange. But I mean, he fits so naturally into that cowboy role. Um, I felt like he was the most grounded and believable and just awesome character throughout the whole film. Um, I don't know. Every time he was on screen, I, I just couldn't look away. He was the focus and his performance alone, in my opinion, was worth the ticket price. Yeah. So a couple other highlights I wanted to mention before we dive into the story. Just realize this is not your grandfather's Magnificent Seven. A lot of the story is changed based on the taste of audience today and what the filmmakers wanted to achieve. We don't necessarily have the same characters, the same setting. It's refreshing because enough of the story has been changed that even if you can figure out the plot ahead of time, it's not a turn-by-turn copy of the original film. So it's less likely for you to get bored. But that being said, the violence is updated for modern times. Think about the violence in more modern Westerns like True Grit and 310 to Yuma, that you're going to see a little bit more blood. You're going to see some tomahawk action. There's a lot of firearms. There's a lot of rounds. Literally, a few hundred people die in this film, Chad. Yeah, that's not really much of an exaggeration at all. <laughs> Which is a lot more than your grandfather's Magnificent Seven. So keep that in mind. And if you're also, if you just enjoy this kind of film, like The Seven Samurai, or on the other end of the extreme, this film actually reminded me of A Bug's Life, where you have a small colony oppressed by some outsiders, the the grasshoppers, they're wanting food out of the colony. They expect them to perform or they're going to come in and squash them. And then there is a few of the ants that go looking for bigger, better, heroic bugs to help them fight off the grasshoppers. That is what you're getting in in a nutshell in this story. So if that plot line interests you because you see it crop up in films over time and you just like to see it done uh, a, a different take on the exact same notion, then this story should probably interest you. But if not, then uh, you can pass it up. Yeah, you know, Joe, I was getting ready to record and I was looking over the outline you have prepared for us and you wrote that point about a bug's life. And I was like, wait a second, hold on. And then it, you're, you're completely right. I didn't even make that connection. Um, it, it sort of blows my mind a little bit that a bug's life is Seven Samurai or Magnificent <laughs> Seven or however you want to think of it. Uh, yeah. it, it, it didn't occur to me. And now I don't think I'll ever be able to watch that movie without <laughs> thinking of this at the same time, which is great. I, I think Pixar, Pixar is always so clever when it comes to their movie references, when it comes to their, their following along of other movies or slipping in this illusion here, whatever it is, Pixar is always very smart about it. And to think that they sort of slipped that by, um, for maybe the adults to enjoy more than the kids and for the adults to introduce their kids once they're older, I think that's very cool of them. And, it definitely heightens that movie a little bit for me. So a little bit about the film. We have Antoine Fuqua as the director, and he brings his modern vision to a classic story, The Magnificent Seven. With the town of Rose Creek under the deadly control of industrial Bartholomew Bogue, the desperate townspeople employ protection from seven outlaws, bounty hunters, gamblers, and hired guns. As to prepare the town for the violent showdown that they know is coming, these seven mercenaries find themselves fighting for more than money. 
It is starring Denzel Washington as Sam Chisholm. He is a warrant officer from Wichita, Kansas, and he is the leader of the seven. Chris Pratt plays Joshua Faraday. He is a gambler with a fondness for explosives. And then we have Ethan Hawke as Goodnight. And I do not want to try and pronounce his last name. I didn't catch it in the film. <laughs> Robichaux. Robichaux. Okay, Robichaux. He is a Confederate veteran and sharpshooter, and apparently he fought in the war alongside of Sam Chisholm, or they, they knew each other at least uh, from crossing paths in various battles. Then you have Vincent D'Onofrio as Jack Horn, a tracker and mountain man. And you might remember him as Wilson Fisk in Daredevil. I thought incredible performance here. I, I almost didn't recognize him with hair and with a completely different voice. But it was really fun to watch him in action. Uh, Vincent nails this character, a completely different kind of man. I liked him more as the film went on. At first, I did not. I thought his voice was a little bit silly. I thought, I don't know, it, it just seemed like a gimmicky character character to me. My immediate thought when watching the movie was Radagast the Brown in <laughs> uh, the Hobbit movies. And how unnecessary that character was because he wasn't in the books except for he was mentioned like twice. That That, that was my thought when I first saw Jack Horn in this film. <laughs> like I said, though, over the course of the film, I liked him more. Then we have Bung Hun Lee as Billy Rocks. He's the East Asian immigrant and knife-wielding assassin. They call him assassin. I would just say he is a great fighter for hire. He works alongside of Goodnight. Then we got Manuel Garcia Rolfo. Rolfo? Okay, Chad, you take your best stab at this name. Okay, it is Manuel Garcia Rolfo as Vasquez. Thank you. And then we got Martin Sins... Ah, you just finished the names. It's Martin Sinsmeyer as Red Harvest, an exiled Comanche warrior. Thank you very much, Chad. No problem. What would we do without you? This is why we need guests, <laughs> so that I, because I can't pronounce names. <laughs> and then Peter Sarsgaard as Barthum, Bartholomew <laughs> Bogue, corrupt industrialist. And I'm not going to try and go through the rest of the names. But it's worth the mention that we have Haley Bennett as uh, the Emma Cullen. And she is the young woman who hires the seven. The leading lady. It's pretty sad there what happens at the beginning of the film. So let's talk a little bit about the story. Okay. The film starts with the fearful town hall meeting there in Rose Creek. Because the farmers are all gaggled together in the, the church with their children, their wives. And they're afraid because they keep on bumping heads with Bogue, who's the local miner who wants all of their land. And he's bullying them into giving him free labor. He just wants their resources, and he wants to abuse them any way he can. The sheriff and his men are oppressing them as well to do whatever Bogue wants. They're controlling the town. This is a farmer's town, though. It started out as an innocent thing. So the farmers just want to defend their rights, but they're not sure what they are because you've got Bartholomew telling them how to live, and it's a, a, a very oppressive, tyrannical system. When he walks in the door, you got Bogue and his, his men. He has a hired Indian, and he's got others there that are real uh, killers, murderers that are in his posse. They're there to tell the townsfolk how they shall live their lives, and threaten them any way they can, threaten their children. It's it's really sad, and you can see how they're in dire straits. But I think it's worth noting here, Chad, that you really instantly realize you don't need to hate Bogue. You need to desire for his demise. You want this guy gone. You really want him dead. This brought to mind a, a great line I remember from, uh, I think it was 101 Dalmatians by Disney, 
where this kid is playing a video game and they're uh, trying to identify what would be a good villain for the story in a video game. And someone says, wouldn't it be great if we just had a different villain, someone that you could really hate? And this kid, you know, testing the game says, it's not the desire to hate the villain that makes a great game. It is the desire to annihilate the villain. And I felt that way watching this film that right there at the get-go, you really want Bartholomew Bogue annihilated. That's something this film does really, really well in regards to its story is, you know, we get the villain, but we we see Bogue like at the very beginning of the film and then at the end of the film. And that's really the only time throughout that we see him. There's one quick interlude where uh, he sets up the action of the the latter part of the film, but he's not around. And so it would be easy to forget why are they got why are these guys doing this why are these seven gathering to defend this town like what what's the big deal it's just this one guy but because of the way they introduce him at the very beginning of the film he shows up he kills some people he is ruthless he burns down a church i mean this guy is the worst of the worst he makes the, the filmmakers make us really like you said wish for his demise from the very get go and it's not his first appearance is not something we can easily forget it's something that uh, really sticks with you, and it, it's hard to watch. And it's it's a good thing because once he's gone from the screen, it doesn't mean we, we don't easily forget why these guys have to do what they have to do. Yeah. And it's important how they used the church as a symbol throughout the film because once it's burned down and people are murdered in the street as Bogue is exiting the church and the town hall, you realize that their symbol for hope is completely lost in this town now. They they are at their wit's end. They don't know how to deal with Bogue. They're going to have to reach out to the outside for somebody to take him on because it, their best chance was for some cool heads there in the town hall to find a solution. And that time has passed now. You can see why someone like Emma Cullen, who is now widowed because of Bogue at you know gunshot there in the street – that it's important for her and others like her to quickly seek out some hired guns to come back and tick on Bogue. They just cannot rely on the local law enforcement. Right. And real quick, while we're talking about Emma Cullen a little bit, uh, I did want to mention that I think she is like the second highlight for me in this film. Denzel is outstanding, but I thought she was outstanding too. She's um, emotional. She's sympathetic. She's She's great in all those regards, but then towards the end of the film, she gets her moment in the sun as an action hero. She she gets to be more than just the weeping widow. She is somebody who makes a difference in that final fight and has some really great moments. And I, I thought that actress, um, Haley Bennett, actually did a really, really good job with that role. I really appreciated her. So then we cut to the poker match in the bar, and you got Chris Pratt introduced. He's having the poker match. There's somebody there who's got a one eye, and uh, the other one is scarred up there, and it looks like a nasty business. Obviously, it's making it difficult for Faraday to read him in the poker match, but he's not getting the best cards, and the, the game is going south when you see Chisholm. Uh, stroll into town and go into the bar and start talking to the bartender. And that conversation gets rather odd pretty fast. He starts singing in the bartender's ear before he he attacks the man. Uh, the bartender flips out as well. He reaches for his gun, but then Chisholm reaches for his and he fires the bartender before he had a chance. 
Everybody else, though, flips out and reach for their guns, and they're ready to take out this stranger who just strolled into town and killed their bartender. But he quickly explains who he is, that he had a warrant, that this man was wanted in other states, and he could show the paperwork to prove it. So he is justified, and everybody respects the fact, okay, Chisholm actually had a, a reason, and our bartender was just not to be trusted. And this gives... Faraday the opportunity to rob the other poker players because they left their money on the table when all the commotion ensued. Then he's sneaking out the back with a bottle of whiskey or vodka or something. And and then he is approached by some people who he owed money in the past bet. He wronged them. He robbed them. And things just escalate very quickly there as uh, he's at gunpoint and it looks like he's going to die. But then he uh, he outsmarts these other petty cowboys you know, using a magic trick to distract them until he's able to shoot them and he's able to escape. Yeah. Like I said, Chris Pratt wasn't my favorite character here. And this was one of those scenes that sort of set up a why. Um, I thought a lot of the time he was great, but a lot of the time it felt like he was just there to be Chris Pratt delivering Chris Pratt lines. Yeah. I felt like the writing was leaning too heavily on performance and weak on the dialogue and the character development. They wanted to see what the the actors could do to flesh it out a little bit too much. I would have rather they had a, bit, a little bit better character development and setup. Yeah. So for Chris Pratt, I would say he's just as capable a dramatic actor as Denzel Washington is. The problem is they wanted him to be Chris Pratt here rather than his character. And so we get, I, I didn't mind the card tricks because that, that beginner, that beginning scene where he introduces the card tricks and dupes the guys out of paying attention to the cards rather than the gun etc. Um, I thought that scene was silly, but then it pays itself off later in the film. And they do that a couple times throughout this movie where they have a couple of silly scenes that's like, okay, why am I watching this now? And then later they sort of justify it, but it's like, well, that scene was still silly. <laughs> so I, I like that. And I don't begrudge the film trying to have its funny moments. I didn't want it to be a dreary affair the whole, whole time. I wanted it to be fun. And it was fun a lot of the time, but I just didn't want them to take it too far. And I think one or two times, maybe maybe one or two more times more, um, they did take it almost too far. But like I said, I did enjoy this movie overall. Now, what did you think about Emma Cullen coming into town and uh, hiring Sam Chisholm? Do you think she had heard wind of this guy or do you think she just walked into town and happened to come across him? Yeah, I felt like that was a lot of blind luck that she was looking for some people that were tough guys who needed pay who were readily available and she didn't really know who she was looking for, but she just got lucky coming across a guy who was, who obviously had some character and some professional value to bring to her town of Rose Creek. If he had not agreed to the job, who knows how long she would have been looking for somebody that was willing and able to come back to Rose Creek to help them out really on a, on a death match. And I don't think that characters like these in the real world would have been so willing agreed so quickly to come to her aid. But the way it's explained in the film is that Emma approaches Sam Chisholm and he's got the horse and she is desperate. She is accompanied by another one of the farmers from town, but really he's, he's no help at all in persuading Chisholm. They, they just seem like two very, very desperate farmers that don't know where else to turn. But then she's able to toss Sam money, a bag of money, all the money supposedly that they have in town. She mentions that who she's going after is Bartholomew Bogue, which as it turns out, Sam Chisholm has a history with this man. That is really what turns him. It's not the money. 
or anything that Emma can say, but a personal vendetta he has with the man that is attacking Rose Creek. He makes the decision rather quickly. He was already planning to go somewhere else, but now knowing that he can go up against Bartholomew, he, he's going to take advantage of the situation and he's going to help Emma out. Yeah, I, I liked that. I think that there was this sort of slow reveal over Sam's true motivations for helping Emma out. Obviously, he, he is a principled man. He is a Christian. And that is actually something that's surprisingly prevalent throughout this movie is Christianity. What was cool about Denzel's character, about Sam, is that over the course of the film, we get little bits of his motivation aside from just being a good man who sees these people who need help. And that really culminates in the ending scene, which we'll get to, where we find out his true motivation. We find out what the what was behind this vendetta. And uh, it's, a, it's a good moment of sort of justice for him. What followed the next was a series of of recruiting all the other band of the seven. So you have you have the situation where Faraday wants his horse and he's up against an Irishman, a very short Irishman. The Irishman has his horse and he's not going to sell it. Obviously, Pratt, Pratt, Pratt doesn't have anything to offer him. Then up walks Sam Chisholm, who is looking to hire Faraday to join his group. And he is able to offer money to buy the horse but the only way that he is going to agree to do that is if Faraday will go with him to Rose Creek. It was enough that they established Denzel's character and Chris's character as the main two good guys among the Magnificent Seven and that the rest of them would be great supporting characters. Right. But they, they were really developing these two before they proceeded with the other five. Yeah, you know, looking back, I I don't really buy – Faraday's motivation for joining the party. Yeah, me neither. Um, <laughs> I, I, it just, it's not all that convincing to me. So I, what, what I'm sort of telling myself was his motivation, aside from just getting his horse, is I think there was a mixture of fascination over Sam, which we, we see in the bar scene when Sam conflict with the bartender. And he sort of stares on from his poker table and he, he's fascinated by Sam. I, I think that's a genuine part of it. And yeah. the money, I think, is a part of it too. But Still, it's just hard to believe that this guy would go along for this adventure in which he almost certainly is going to die, you know? And they gloss over it, too, because there is a cut where it feels like when they didn't really want to show how it was explained and go through the minutiae of something that was not convincing, they cut to where now Faraday is riding side by side with Sam as they ride off together to find more men. Uh, but it works because now he's got his horse and you don't want to take this film too seriously or it breaks down. <laughs> so just enjoy the fact that you've got these two great actors playing uh, really interesting cowboys. So hopefully it'll work and they'll find other interesting characters to join their group. And it worked out because then you got Sam and Emma go into this uh, this house. I didn't understand why they were there, but they found an outlaw, a Mexican outlaw there. In, it seemed like maybe Chisholm was after the man, but he finds this Mexican outlaw and he quickly explains, I can either take you in or you can join my group and I'll be one less man that is hunting you down. The Texican, as he calls him at one point, agrees to join the group because he's a great gunslinger. And even if there's no money in it for the, the Mexican, at least he knows he doesn't have Sam Chisholm hunting him down. He'd rather be on Sam's good side. Again, it's kind of a weak excuse for why he joins the group, but it still makes sense that if you're in a Western time, everybody's carrying guns, and you're a wanted man, people know who you are. 
and there is a price on your head, one less man hunting you down is a, is a good thing. Yeah, and I, I think this is another scene that sort of reveals a little bit more about Sam rather than more about the Texican. It, it's about him revealing even more that he's he's got this vendetta against Bo. We've we've witnessed him being pretty dedicated to his job. He he takes his job seriously. He's he's after these these warrant uh he's he's trying to get these people who are wanted in order to cash in his reward. Um so we don't we still don't know the history between him and Bogue, but he's giving up this bounty, this potential for more money in order to take Bogue down. So he's he's sacrificing money for the chance at what we come to find out is revenge. Yep. And then they have to quickly recruit Goodnight and Billy Rocks. And the way that that just makes sense is because they are a pair that go together. Goodnight is a retired Confederate war veteran. And Billy Rocks is fantastic with knives. He is a killer. He's got skills. They, uh, they're obviously looking for something more interesting. And so they're widely available. And Goodnight already knowing Sam Chisholm, when they stroll through town, they quickly join the group and they're off to Rose Creek. Then you also have the recruitment of Jack Horn, who we mentioned earlier, played by uh, Vincent D'Onofrio. Thank you. Great guy. Interesting, awkward scenario. It, it works for the film by the end of the film, but the way he is introduced felt stilted. But it, it, he's just interesting enough that you can see that this group of Guardians of the Galaxy uh, cowboys, misfits in the West, need one more guy. They need every guy they can get. And so with the idea that Bogue is probably going to have hundreds of men hunting them down in Rose Creek, one more guy who is a skilled killer like Jack Horn on the good guy side is a good thing. So even if he is strange and sometimes clumsy, uh, get this mountain man on your side. This was then where they recruit the last of the seven. They show the Indian approaching their camp in the morning and it looks like uh, you, you just don't know how to – if you see one Indian – that means there's probably two or three dozen others that you don't see that are ready to kill all of you. But this turns out that it's he's Comanche, and Sam Chisholm knows just enough about the language. He's able to communicate with this man, Red Harvest. He's a young Indian that was basically banished from his tribe. It's not exactly clear, but they thought that he had another path for his life, so they sent him away, and he agreed to do that. And Sam and he both take a bite out of a raw piece of deer meat to to prove that they uh, there are two men that understand each other that could trust each other to an extent. Yeah, it was a cool scene and uh, another testament to Denzel just staying completely in character and it's obviously disgusting and he he, <laughs> he, he keeps a straight face. He oh, takes the bite out and he, I've already had my breakfast. <laughs> <laughs> Now, finally, the seven can ride into town, deal with the local sheriff and deputies that are up to no good, corrupt through and through, working for Bogue. I liked the scene a lot. I thought it was really cool. But the only thing that gave me pause was like, how do they know who all is the bad guy? Well, because this is the first time there. You had Emma who could probably describe them and the other farmer that was with her. Right. But there were 22 of them. Yeah. (laughs) And so... And some of them were hiding indoors, and so they, they'd, like, jump inside this building and, oh, bang, he's dead. Oh, bang, he's dead. And then at the end of that scene, the rest of the town come out, and they're in these buildings, too. So it it just seemed a little too convenient that there weren't any 
casualties that they didn't intend to be casualties. But like I said, I thought this was a fun scene. I thought it was cool. And Denzel, are, are you sure you don't want my gun? <laughs> <laughs> there was some Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. style action here where all the good guys know exactly what they need to do until they don't know what they need to do. But in the scene, they all knew exactly what they needed to do. Right. And they wipe out all the bad guys in town. What characterized all the scenes up to this point was even if it isn't the most rational thing to have happened or the most likely thing to have happened, it was really fun and entertaining to watch. Like so many Westerns were, they, they don't really make a lot of sense, but they, that doesn't take away from their entertainment value. And then there was a series of scenes where the seven need to train the farmers to prepare for the attack. And so the seven are getting to know each other. They're playing off of each other. They're training the farmers. The farmers are getting to know them and, you know, getting to know their rough edges, but also get past those because they have to work together to fight Bogue. And this was where actually I was a little bit frustrated. There was a scene where Goodnight is actually trying to train the farmers to shoot. And then there is uh, Billy Rocks who's trying to train the farmers with knives and they depict that all the farmers are completely inexperienced with firearms and with knives. They don't know how to shoot the bright side of the barn. But I'm thinking for survival of the time, a great deal of these men would have been skilled with knives and guns, even if they were not accustomed to firing at other people. So I don't know. It, it was greatly entertaining because it was funny to see a whole row of men completely miss the targets when it, even if it doesn't really add up, but it worked effectively to send the message of the story that really these farmers, there was none of them that were magnificent among their posse. Right. These these training scenes were probably my least favorite part of the film, to be honest. They just seemed, it seemed a little long and unnecessary. They could have been taken out of the film. Yeah. I, I will defend Billy Rocks. He was trying to teach them knife combat which is very different than just knowing how to use a knife. So I, I, I'll defend that. The gunfire, I, I will agree, is a little harder to forgive. But uh, me sort of rationalizing it right now is what if they they get all their meat from unhand un animals uh, that they raise themselves so they wouldn't necessarily need a gun to, to kill it or take it down or from traders who might come through town or through a nearby town and they travel there and they get their, their food or their meat there. Uh, that's again, that's still hard to defend because I, I think you're right. It's sort of a characteristic of the time. Most people, at least the men, would know how to shoot in some capacity. They would have been comfortable with guns. They would have understood how to hold it and how to, to aim. And at least one of them out of 30 could have hit the target. It's just Right. Really, these scenes only served two purposes. One was for comedy, obviously. Um, and two, it was to sort of show the contrast between the seven and Emma and everybody else and how how hard they'd have to work together and how much they were relying on the seven in order to uh, emerge victorious from this. Yeah. We're going to jump forward because a lot of the second act was not super important to the really why you pay for a ticket to see this movie. You have the showdown, which really matters the most to this film. This is what makes them the Magnificent Seven. And it was a huge chunk of the film. It, it felt well-paced. It felt like it was unfolding in real time. And that was something I really enjoyed about that scene was it felt sort of like the, you know, in all the Home Alone movies where the kid has set up some booby traps for 
the burglars that are going to break in and try to rob his parents. Right. It felt like that at first where Bogue has his small army of men on horseback. Every last one of them has a horse. And every last one of them is riding into town without a strategy. They think that by their mere numbers, they're going to just blow away all of the townspeople. And it's not exactly clear what they intend to do, I guess, whether or not they face any hostility from the people of Rose Creek. They're just going to ride in with guns blazing and kill everybody, men, women, and children, because Bode knows that the seven hired guns are there to, to stop him. The Magnificent Seven have staged a lot of booby traps. They've dug trenches and they've set up tents and they have explosives. And this is where they highlight one of Faraday's character traits is that he loves explosives. And so he has a special affinity for the dynamite and he's going to use them to great effect. While uh, Sam Chisholm stands back in the town more strategically and he is a part of the gunfight, but he is waiting for the best opportune moment to 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 fight Bogue, but he has to wait for Bogue to ride into town after the majority of the rest of his posse have ridden ahead of him to try and wipe out the people of Rose Creek. Right. I like the Home Alone comparison, but I, I don't think of it as a negative comparison either. I think it just shows that both Kevin McAllister in Home Alone and the Magnificent Seven here are just resourceful. And they're able to recognize that they're at a disadvantage Kevin because of his age and his size and there's two of them and only one of him and for very much similar reasons the Magnificent Seven because they're outnumbered by a huge amount and they need the element of surprise they need it on their side exactly and so I I think that I like that comparison I just think it's it doesn't have to be taken as a negative comparison we're just recognizing how resourceful these people are and recognizing that they need to take advantage where they can And there's also this fun element about the Seven that they all have very unique fighting styles, but they are paralleled by some of the fighters for Bogue. So Bogue has an Indian and there is an Indian among the Magnificent Seven. So they have a face-off. And there's others like that where they just have um, a compelling reason that these two seem like a good match. So they face each other down in the street. And there's a couple of great one-liners I really enjoyed after Faraday gets shot that he says, uh, doing good so far or something. Uh, you know, he's obviously not doing good so far, but everybody smiles. And and then they continue to, to take on just the barrage of men that flow in the streets on horseback attacking the, the townspeople of Rose Creek. I, I thought this was so – bizarre that there are so many people that are riding into the town. And for the most part, yeah, they've got guns and yeah, you see some of the farmers get shot. But for the most part, it is all of Bogue's men that are going down. Who knows where all the horses are going? There's lots of horses, but none of them are to be seen after their riders are killed. But it's really fun and entertaining. Just again, the quality of this movie is consistent from start to finish, where it really doesn't take away from the film that the odds are not in their favor. Because, like the story of the Alamo, you really just want to see that these men get their comeuppance, and Bogue has got to be taken down. And the Magnificent Seven would not be magnificent if they were to lose in the end. So they keep up the energy. They keep on uh, driving home the the a authenticity of the fight, even if it isn't very realistic. 
Right. I liked a lot of this ending fight sequence that was such the, a large chunk of the latter portion of the film. I liked it a lot. I thought it was very well choreographed. I thought the the use of explosives and uh, all that kind of stuff was well done. I didn't think it was overly gory or anything, which made it easier to watch. Now, there were a couple of moments that were difficult to watch, especially at the very beginning of it, where there's dynamite going off, there's horses flying. And it, it, it was a little emotionally affecting for me. But it, it it tamed a little bit after that as it slowed down. We got past the initial onslaught and we got to focus more on the character moments throughout the fight. Uh, we haven't said any big spoilers yet. Are, are we going to do any big spoilers, Joe? We'll say now spoilers ahead relating to the the last quarter of the film. Yeah. Okay. So obviously, since I didn't have any experience with the previous films to this, I didn't know if the Magnificent Seven would die. I didn't know if any of them would die. I didn't know if one or two of them would die. I definitely didn't expect four of them to die. And I don't know if all of them felt like earned deaths. Really? I don't think that Faraday's death was really well earned because throughout the film, we see Faraday struggling a little bit with alcohol consumption. We see him being this sort of suave guy who, I I don't know, there were problems he had throughout the film that didn't seem to be addressed for me. And his sacrifice didn't seem like it was earned. I didn't understand his motivation to suddenly sacrifice himself. Yes, he was there and he was fighting, but when he decided, okay, I'm going to run out towards this Gatling gun and basically kamikaze myself into this Gatling gun to save everybody else. I didn't I didn't understand his motivation there aside from like just a heroic act, I guess. It, it was a little strange for me. And likewise, Jack Horn's uh, death that seemed a little out of place too. It was just all of a sudden he's fighting this Indian and he's dead. Um, <laughs> and it was very much a Boromir moment. I mean, yeah. straight up Boromir from Fellowship of the Ring. I mean, I didn't have a problem with the scenes in and of themselves. It was just the lead up to them didn't feel like it really did anything. It didn't really feel like it was leading these characters to these conclusions. Now for Robichaux and Billy Rocks, I thought that was a little bit better I didn't have any problem with their death in particular. It was just those other two. I, I don't know. They just seemed they were these big dramatic deaths. They they had these big dramatic sacrifices, and I didn't really understand what led them to that. Hmm. Does that make sense? I was actually expecting all of the Magnificent Seven to have a dramatic and fulfilling death, but it didn't feel like that turnout where some of them live, some of them die. The way that they died was the right mixture but still felt consistent with the quality of the overall whole of the film. So I don't really hold it against them because the way it comes down with Sam Chisholm in the church with Bartholomew Boak was really, really well executed and rewarding where it was just the right amount of uh, like a toxic mix of justice versus vengeance and whether or not this was an act for, you know, uh, an execution for the right reasons or the wrong reasons, or that Chisholm was really, truly justified and he was really helping the town. Was he just unnecessarily torturing Bogue or was Bogue really not to be trusted and he deserved this level of punishment? And coming down to Emma being the one to avenge her husband, who was killed at the beginning of the film, an unarmed man. And she's not just, she's not just, taking out Bogue, but she sees that Bogue is prepared to surprise and kill Chisholm with a Derringer. 
which was something that we saw a few other times in the film where derringers popped up and were used for the element of surprise. And I, I felt like it was extremely interesting to see how for a moment there, it looked like Chisholm was about to pray Bogue to death <laughs> with yeah. using the Lord's Prayer, driving home the kinds of themes that Denzel Washington likes to bring to all of his movies. It is still driving home this idea that we want to honor the Lord where all justice is concerned. But more than that, sometimes evil men just have to be eradicated. Right. <laughs> they will be evil to the death. Right. And it's that scene in the church where we finally learn what has driven Sam to to go this far to take down Bogue. He, his sisters, his mother, his his whole family, he lost to this man. Uh, so this is something that Bogue has been doing for a long time, apparently, taking over these towns, making people suffer, just being a generally vile human being. Yeah. And, you know, I like that Emma was the one who ended up being the one killing Bogue because it makes me question whether or not Sam actually would have killed him. You know? Interesting. Yeah. He he might have. I don't know. But at the same time, I think he might not have. He He's shown throughout the film he has compassion. And he he is a man of morals. There's one scene earlier in the film before the final fight where he goes into the church alone and sort of has his own moment with God and <laughs> sort of trying to make peace with himself and with him. And I, I, I like that. I think he very well may have, if Emma had not stepped in, been shot by Bogue or shot Bogue or something like that, he, he might have taken that path. But I think it's equally possible that he could have walked away or just left Bogue there to suffer and die alone. Um, so I, I, I like movies that make me ask questions, and this one did a good job with that in that particular moment. So let's go ahead and wrap up then our thoughts of the film. Uh, Chad, would you say that we would recommend our listeners watch this movie if they haven't seen it already? I would definitely recommend it. And I think that this movie is a good film on its own, I obviously don't have the original film to compare it against. I'm looking forward to watching it and making that comparison eventually. But for now, I'm glad that I was able to walk into this movie unprepared, unfettered by any previous notions or opinions and just enjoy it for what it was. And it's a, it's a fun Western movie. It's well choreographed. It's well acted most of the time. I do have my complaints like I do with any movie, but overall it's, it's a great movie and Denzel gives another outstanding performance. And if you are a Chris Pratt fan, then he is also entertaining, even if his character, like many of the others, feel a little weak in the script at times. I do want to give my thumbs up to this film. It is not exactly a bloodbath, but there is a high body count. So depending on what your scale for violent content is, it may be overwhelming. Also some harsh language. So I wouldn't recommend you watch this with the kids. But if you enjoyed the classic and you want to see a Western that's not exceptionally dark, it's not all about vengeance. A lot of this is about really protecting the innocent. And so the Magnificent Seven are saving lives. They're looking out for women and children. They show that throughout the film, that they're looking out for a lot of the weaker people that need uh, stronger men to defend them. So I, I found it very encouraging, very heroic. And maybe not worth seeing in theaters, but catch it sometime. And if you enjoy Westerns, then all the more reason to check it out. 
Definitely. And I would say real quick regarding the violence, what's what's nice about the violence in this film is, yes, there's a lot of it, but none of it is gory or excessively bloody. There's some blood, but this is this is far from a Quentin Tarantino Western movie. Yeah. And that actually came to my mind while watching this film was my isn't it refreshing that it doesn't have the weight of that excessive entertainment driven sort of stylistic violence or heavy on shock value. There is some shock value here, but it's not the same kind of shock because it's not excessive brutality. It's just his excessive heroic violence. So you can stomach this a lot better than you could manage a Quentin Tarantino Western. Definitely. Chad, where can people find more movie reviews from Chad Hopkins? Definitely check out my podcast, which is thecinescopepodcast.com. Uh, that's the best place to find that. And I also continue to write movie reviews on chadlikesmovies.com. And if you want to follow me personally, the best place is on Twitter at twitter.com slash chadadada, C-H-A-D-A-D-A-D-A. And if you want to catch more movie reviews from our podcast, then check them out at nightowl.fm. And check out the show notes for any links to anything that we discussed. If you want a quick link to the film on IMDb. I am at JCS Darnell on Twitter. You can also catch up with all the podcasts that we are promoting through Night Owl at the Night Owl Twitter page. That is at Night Owl FM. Thanks for listening to this episode of Retake. If you want to join us again for another movie review next week, we'll probably have TJ Draper back with us and some of our other guests. Chad, thanks so much for joining us on episode four of Retake. It's been a blast. Thank you.